Never seen so many people try to get out of church so fast in my life. Uh, anyway. Um, well, it is college football season, which is one of my favorite times of the year. Because there's college football on TV, and there's, uh, the, the weather has gotten cooler, as you can tell. And uh, you can break out your, your parkas and coats and things like that. So you don't get a chance to wear them much. Uh, it's kind of a joke, but anyway. Uh, but, but, but usually by this time of year in the college football season, you start to get a little bit of a feel for what kind of team. If you have a team, and there's 12 games a year, by week three or four, you start to get a little bit of a feel for what your team is, is going to be like, right? And then by week four or five, you really, you really know. And we all know that college football fans, the word fan is short for fanatic. It is, the fanatics. And I'm a recovering fanatic, I believe. I tried to make myself a recovering. I was born in a family that went to every single Carolina game, brainwashed at early age in Columbia, and so I'm a recovering fanatic. I'm trying to get into reality. It's taken me many years. But college football fans are crazy. And, and, and some are truly not in reality. For instance, in the SEC, Southeastern Conference, 13 of the 14 fan bases think they should win it every year. Well, you know, besides Vanderbilt, they know they can't. But everybody else thinks they should. That's not realistic. You're not in reality. The expectations that each fan base has for their team is just not realistic. And it doesn't matter how good they are or how poor they are, they always have unrealistic expectations, right? Even if you have a really good team and they don't shut out someone, why didn't we shut them out? We allowed three points or something like that, right? And so there's unrealistic expectations. Coaches have already been fired this year. Did you know that? Three or four weeks in, coaches have already lost their jobs. And so fans and boosters who support, they get so zoomed in with their own team, they can't really zoom out and see what the reality really is. Now, if, if, if you have a team, that if you're not a fan of a team, and you see them on TV, you, you, you know what the reality is. You know what that team is. But that fan can't see it. They're, they're blind to it because they're so in the weeds with it. They're so zoomed in. They can't see the real, true reality of what their team is or who they are. Have you ever met someone who's just not living in reality? You know, and this goes, this exceeds just football fandom. Many people in our world today are, are living day to day, making decisions every day, making very important life and death decisions, and they think they're in reality, but they are not. They're living in a dream world. They're living in a fantasy world, whether it's about what's happening in the world, the cultural events, anything like this. They're not in reality. They're too zoomed in, and they can't zoom out and really see the world. And so they're in a fantasy world starting a new series today that's going to take us through the fall. We're going to be looking at Jesus' final weeks, final days as he journeyed to Jerusalem to complete his mission, which was to die on the cross for the sins of mankind. And so he's talking about things that are important that people need to know, and he's having very important events take place in his life. And we're jumping right in the deep end today, right in the deep end with our subject. And we're talking about a subject that makes many people feel uncomfortable because it should make you feel uncomfortable. But some people are, are so uncomfortable with it, they just avoid it. Well, if you avoid it, you're not in reality because you're avoiding reality. And that's the doctrine, the subject, the reality of, of hell, heaven, and eternity. 
Many churches, denominations completely distance themselves from the subject because it's uncomfortable, because it might even be offensive to others. So we dare not offend anyone with the truth, even if we do it politely. And teaching on the doctrine of, of hell is not really e- viewed as a good evangelism strategy. Uh, you even see that, that, that as espouse as, hey, if you're going to reach people, talk about hell. No, actually don't talk about hell is what they would say. Because hell is not palatable, it's not appetizing to society. If you're trying to draw a crowd to a church, if we're just trying to draw the biggest crowd into a church, teaching about hell is the worst thing you can do. But our goal at First Baptist is not to draw a crowd. It's to make disciples. And that's what our goal is. And part of becoming a disciple is to be made into the image of Jesus. And Jesus spoke a lot about hell. In fact, that reality is why Jesus came in the first place. He came to save us from that place. But, you know, when we start to talk about people like murderers and rapists and war criminals, we, we often think of them being judged in a place called hell like they deserve it. And we have no problems imagining God doling out justice for people like that. But for the most part, most people don't need to go somewhere like that. That's what we think. And so there's something in us that calls for justice on evildoers. Everybody has that in them. And that is what the Bible calls hell. So today we're looking at a parable that Jesus told us. Told us he was on the way to Jerusalem. His time was coming near and he continued to talk about the kingdom of God. And he talks about the subject today. And so we're going to see, hell is not just for the worst murderers on the planet. That's not who it's for. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 16 today, starting in verse 19. Jesus tells his disciples, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham! Have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a A great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage today, we see a lot of things in this passage. We see this idea of hell and heaven. We see this idea of finality. We see this idea of of listening to your word. 
and doubting people rising from the dead. So, Father, let us hear what we all need to hear today in this passage. I pray that you would speak through me, uh, that my words are yours, that you come with your spirit, and that we all get a healthy dose of reality today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's three realities here that seem similar, but are all very distinct that we see in the Scripture. The first one I want to give you is this, that death is a reality. Now, there's probably no one in here that would argue that point. Well, I don't think you, I don't think, you know, you really, I don't think deaths happen. We know what happens, and no, no one's going to argue that. But many times we live as if death is not a reality. Many times people try to live without thinking about the subject of death. Like, it's not really a real thing, or that's something I don't have to worry about. That, that'll happen later in life. Well, you know, my best friend died two weeks ago, dropped dead of a heart attack just like that, age 43. I wasn't thinking about him dying, and he sure wasn't either. So you never know what life has. And so we need to realize that death is reality, and we are not promised the next day. But we try to avoid it. We see this here in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and in fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. So he starts this parable talking about a wealthy person. Now let me say, first of all, that, that um, uh, this seems to cast bad light on wealthy people. That's not, the, that's not what this passage is about, as we'll get it. It's not a sin to have wealth, as we're going to talk about that in a second. But he talks about this rich man. And we know he was rich because he wore purple. And only expensive wealthy people could afford to buy the purple. And linen was a fine undergarment that was made in Egypt, so he had it imported from Egypt. So he, he had wealthy clothes, and he feasted every day. Now, we can feast every day here in America if we want. We can get big uh, you know, lunches and dinners and things. But in those days, you only feasted unless you were extremely wealthy. Most people just, they, they, they ate to live, is what they did, and, and this man lived to eat. And so some translations say he, he lived in luxury. And so the implication is that he was wealthy he dined in luxury every day. He spent money on what he wanted to spend money on, what he wanted to do. He had no worries of poverty. And he felt like being a child of God, being a Jewish man, that he was good with God. He didn't doubt his standing between him and God. Part of this is because he was wealthy. There's a Jewish belief that riches were a sign of God's blessing, that the more money you had, the more wealth you had, the more God loved you. And the more you are in better standing with God, and that was a Jewish belief, which is part of the reason why Jesus is teaching on this today, to say that's not actually the case. So the wealthy at the time felt pretty good about their eternal destination. And verse 20 says that his, at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. So the man was wealthy enough to have a gate at his house, which isn't totally uncommon nowadays, but back then it would have been. And Lazarus was regularly laid there so that he can beg for food that came out of his house. And the word for poor here literally means worthless. So you could read that by saying there was a, just a poor, worthless man. He, he had no worth to society. He couldn't bring anything to anybody. He couldn't even provide for himself. And so the Jews would hear this parable, and they would hear there was a worthless man named Lazarus. And they also believed that if you were poor or had some kind of disease, some kind of ailment, that that person deserved it because of some sin in their life, some sin in their parents' life. And so we see this when, when, when Jesus healed the man born blind. The disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, who sinned, the, the, man, the man or his parents? And Jesus says, no one sinned. He's born blind so that I may display the glory of God to you today. Right? So the poorest people in this, in this era, the belief was they had no hope of getting into heaven because their sin would never be forgiven. It was kind of like a karma they were living through. 
but that's not the reality. This is what the rich man would have thought. And so he was obviously in peril because of the life decisions he had made, Lazarus, so he deserves this. So verse 21 tells us more about it, that Lazarus desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, you may have a dog at your house that might lick your feet or something, or lick your arm, but that's not what happened back in the day. That's not, Jews would never be around these type of dogs. These were unclean, filthy animals and certainly wouldn't let them lick them. And here we see that God, or Jesus gives a name to this poor man named Lazarus. And this is the only parable where someone is named. And this is this poor man named Lazarus. The rich man is not even named. There's no name for him. And Lazarus' name means he whom God has helped. He whom, he whom God has helped. Think about the irony of that name. It may not look like God had helped him. He didn't probably feel like God had helped him. Maybe we don't know his feelings. We don't ever know what his feelings were. You would think that maybe he wouldn't think that. He literally waited for the trash to be taken out of the wealthy man's house. And as he picked through the garbage, looking for some food, the dogs, which were also there to pick through the trash, they would lick his sores as they picked through the garbage together. And the sores that he had existed because he couldn't move. Kind of like a bed sore. He couldn't move. He laid around all day waiting for food to fall from the trash. And the only comfort he had in his life were the dogs licking the man's sores. I mean, this is worse than a country song. I mean, this is, this is a sad, sad story. And, and, and he says that he desired to be fed, which gives the indication that, that he didn't get a lot of food. He didn't very often get leftovers, so he was constantly hungry. And then it gets worse. Verse 22, what happens next? The poor man, and we would say, yeah, poor guy. The poor man died right there at his lowest of the low. He doesn't get better. There's no happy ending, so to speak, earthly, temporal right there, as you would think. But he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. That is his understanding of heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. So we see here, around the same time, both men die. One man's laying outside of the gate, miserable. The other man inside his palatial abode, having the time of his life. They both die. Lazarus probably dies from starvation, malnutrition. The wealthy man probably dies because he ate too much. Heart disease, who knows what it was. It was a rich man's type of death. But they both died. In reading between the lines, there's no mention of Lazarus even getting a burial. It says that the rich man died and was buried. It just says here the poor man died. They probably just left him, didn't have a tomb, no family, just left him there. Who knows what they did with the body? But the most disgraceful way to die, and sad way to die. But he was taken to Abraham's side. Uh, the, the, rich, the, the rich man, his life was probably celebrated. It's probably on the news if, you, if, you, if they had television back then. It was kind of like the, the, the Queen of England's death. You know, the, the burial, or the, the whole thing's been taken weeks, right? You hear about it, it's all over the, all over the uh, news. And the big funeral, and there probably was some celebration. And this man probably helped people. He probably, was, you know, he probably wasn't just selfish. He probably had a good name in, in the community. But there's this big funeral, but that's where things change with the two. Because death is reality, but number two, death is not all there is. 
the afterlife is reality. Now, you might, some might debate, no one's going to debate that death's a reality, but some might debate if there's an afterlife. There are plenty of people who don't believe there's anything that happens after you die. People just think you die and that's it. You just cease to exist. People do believe that. Or they don't know if there is anything afterwards. They hope, if there is, they hope that this goes well for them. But here the Bible tells us that the afterlife is a reality. There is an afterlife. Look at verse 23. It says, The rich man died and was buried, and in Hades, that's hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, we don't know if, if heaven and hell will be like this. Uh, this is a parable Jesus is teaching about, and so we don't know if he's teaching truth or if he's just telling a story. This is a story, okay? But he, he gives us for a reason, to, to, to let us see the difference between the two places. Hades is the place where the unbelieving and unrighteous dead go. Uh, the, the wealthy man was not annihilated. He didn't just cease to exist. It says that he was constantly tormented. Constantly tormented. See, the afterlife is reality, and apart from Jesus, hell is our default destination. We're not born with a clean slate. We're not born good. We're born with a propensity to sin. We sin by nature, by choice. That is our default destination. If you don't believe that we're little sinners, go hang out with the four-year-old. Hang around children. Children are precious and love in God's sight, but they don't ask permission to do things. They do what they want when they want. You have to train them to do well. All right? So, we don't like talking or hearing about hell. Some people don't believe in it. What kind of God would, would send people to a place like that? See, God doesn't need to defend his actions because he created everything. And if there is a place called hell that exists, it exists for a reason. It exists for a good reason. And God has it there for a reason. And as the rich man was there, he saw Lazarus far off. There seemed to be this great, this unbridgeable gap between the two. And this is what Jesus wants us to know. There's a gap there that can't be crossed. Verse 24, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And look what he says here. This always gets me. Send, make Lazarus, bring me some water. See, he still thinks he's on the earth. He still thinks he's in the temporal world where he calls the shots. Where he says, go get Lazarus to do it for me. Send my gopher. Let him do it. <laughs> Send Lazarus to, to dip the end of his finger in water. I, I, and, and just put his finger in my mouth. I just need, a, I just need a, a cool my tongue. Just a little bit of drop will help me. Get Lazarus. I see Lazarus next, next to you, Abraham. Make Lazarus do it. Because he's worthless. He's poor. That's what really, even in hell, he's still not in reality about the state of things. Such irony. He knew Lazarus by name, the rich man that laid by his gate. And he says, what I wouldn't give for a dog to lick my sores now. And he begs for this request. The reality of hell is so evident that even a lick of a finger that has been dipped into water would be refreshing. That's what he's saying. And he says, send Lazarus. He's still giving orders or trying to give orders in hell. And Abraham answers his request, verse 25. Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things, but now he is comfortable here and you are in anguish. Now, Abraham calls him a child because this man was a Jew. He was physically a son of Abraham, but he wasn't spiritually a son of Abraham. He never placed his faith in the promise 
of the coming Messiah. He, he placed his faith in the temporal riches. He placed his faith in the temporal circumstances. And Abraham reminds him, you lived a good earthly life. You lived a good material life, but you never had faith in God. So Abraham tells him. Lazarus, though, lived a horrible life, but he had faith in me. And so now he is where he is, and you are where you are. You made your God this world, and you are now in Hades. Lazarus made his God, God, and now he is in Abraham's bosom. It's a harsh reality for him to hear. And then verse 26, he says, And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. The real horror for this wealthy man now, see, in the earth he could get whatever he wanted and do whatever he wanted to do, because he had means to an end. But now the real horror is not that he's in torment. It's not that he can't be refreshed. It's that there's nothing he can do about it. He's stuck. There's nothing. See, uh, hell is, is real. We're going to get to the second, the third point here is that eternity is reality. Eternity is reality. The bad news for the unbelievers, there's no way to escape hell. But the good news for the believer is there's no way to escape heaven. You can't get kicked out and you can't leave. It's a nice hotel. It's a nice place to be. But the inverse is also true. Eternity is reality. Some people might believe in afterlife, but they may not believe in an eternal afterlife. And the Bible says here, no, not only is there death, not only is there afterlife, there is an eternal afterlife. It is forever. Verse 27. So he realizes now that he can't leave, and so he starts thinking about his family. And he says, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. I have five brothers Warn them so they don't come here too. Warn them. He understands his fate. He accepts it. Anyone in hell would have this, this idea. He says, just please warn them. And Abraham says this. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What? This is what he says. Abraham says this. They have the Bible. They're in synagogue every week. They have God's word. They have the law, the Torah, the Tanakh. They have the prophets. They have the Ten Commandments. They have the words. They have the Bible. Why would I send Lazarus to them? They have everything that you need to place faith in me. See, God has given us everything we need. He's given us his word. He's given us his book. And that's what Abraham says. Why would I send Lazarus when, when they have everything they need. They have the word of God. Let them read what God has promised. It's not like God has not spoken. It's not like we don't know hell exists. We just don't want to believe it. We try to live in a, live in a state of unreality where we avoid uncomfortable truths. And this man had avoided it. And he knows his brothers are avoiding it. And he thinks, well, if something miraculous happens, maybe it'll get their attention. <laughs> Abraham says, what? God's spoken. It's not like God has not spoken and just left you to hang out to dry. See, the Bible tells us that the reality is that, it tells us what the reality of hell is, but also the simple prescription for avoiding it. Repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. That's the great thing about the gospel. 
Hell is a horrible place and it's eternal, but the only thing you're required to do is, is to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I place my faith in you. God, save me. And you're saved. That's it. You don't have to pray a bunch of prayers. You don't have to do a bunch of work. You don't have to earn it anyway. That's it. But every day people walk around the world thinking that their team is perfect and will be in the playoff. <laughs> but they're not in reality. Their team's probably going to the Belk Bowl. Their team's probably going to have a losing season. They're in a state of not being in reality. See, hell is and will be filled with people who never asked forgiveness for their sins. That's what it's filled with. It's not just filled with murderers or rapists or war criminals. It's filled with people who never asked forgiveness for their sins. It's not a logical thing. It's a supernatural thing. It's also a heart issue. It's a heart issue. It's not like they didn't understand it. They never placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And as believers, we can't take any pride in this either, though. It's by the grace of God that we've been saved. It's by the grace of God that we realized our need for a sinner. And we made that decision, but it's still by God's grace by drawing us to him. So we can't get prideful that, well, I figured it out when I was 10. No, no, no. You'd be thankful that God put people in your life when you were 10 that gave you the gospel that you could hear it. These people, like the wealthy man, bought the lie and willingly believed it, that life, temporal life was better than eternity with God, and it's not. So he said, verse 30, No, Father Abraham, they've got the Bible. They've been to school. They've been to the schools. They've been to all the Jewish schools. They've, they've had all the training. They've read all that. They're still not going to believe. He says, but, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will, they'll believe. What irony. Lazarus is dead. If he comes back, no, they won't believe. You know what they'll say? I saw a ghost. They're not going to believe. And look what Jesus says. Look what Abraham says to him. They do not hear Moses. They do not hear the prophets. They don't read the word of God. They also will not be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. We know this to be true because Jesus walked around for 40 days. You would think the whole world would come to faith. The risen Christ walked around for 40 days. See my side, see my scars. People still didn't believe. And today, Jesus rose from the grave. There is no body. You can't find it. You know why? Because the body's at heaven in the right hand of the, of the Father. People still will refuse to believe in a risen Savior. Jesus gives him the gospel. He says, they don't believe the word of God, and if they don't believe the word of God, they won't be convinced that someone has risen from the dead, and he's right. God made a way through Christ where there was no way, but their hearts have been hardened. Romans 1 says that we're without excuse. See, the rich man did not go to hell because he was rude. He didn't go to hell because he didn't pay his taxes. He didn't go to hell because he was unmerciful or he had a bad mouth or, or anything or he never helped poor people. He went to hell because he didn't believe in the truth of God's word. That's what's in there. One author, one author says this, that heaven is for those who believe in what God has revealed in his word and act on it. 
That's what faith is. People don't go to hell for lack of information. They go to hell because they've rejected the truth, and it's their own fault. And like I said, we don't take credit for our salvation today. We're saved by faith through grace so that no man will boast. One author says this, that in eternity, everything changed for these men. In heaven, the poor man was enormously wealthy. The rich man was now an impoverished beggar. The poor man was inside God's house, the poor man outside. The rich man had no food. The poor man had all the food he could eat. The rich man had needs. The poor man had none. The rich man desired everything. The poor man desired nothing. The rich man suffered. The poor man was satisfied. The rich man was tormented. The poor man was happy. The rich man was humiliated. The poor man was honored. The rich man sought crumbs. The poor man feasted. The rich man needed help. The poor man could not give any help. The rich man was a nobody. The poor man was well known. The rich man possessed no hope. The poor man possessed all hope. And the rich man has no name in this story, but the poor man has a name. Lazarus, the one who God has helped. And if we're going to be in heaven one day, Lazarus needs to be our name. The one God has helped. That's how you should view yourself. The one God has helped. Not the one that who God helps every now and then. Not the one who doesn't need any help. The one that God has helped. You should all be a Lazarus spiritually speaking. Not saying that you have to be poor, not saying you have to be a beggar, that's not the point of this parable, but spiritually speaking, that's how you should be. Humble. Asking God for help. See, there will be a feast one day. The Bible tells us the banqueting table of King Jesus where there will be a feast forever. And temporal comfort is no good if we will spend eternity in torment. And the only way we get to heaven is by being a Lazarus, placing our faith in God. Now, some of you may be like, I've known Jesus for many years. Why do I need to hear this message? You need to hear it because you always need to be preaching the gospel to yourself. You always need to be reminding yourself what it was that you made that decision years ago. Not that you're maybe in danger or something, but preaching it to yourself so you realize what that decision you made was and just how good God is for making a way when there is no way. And we deserve these horrors, but God has made a way. And it's not from a lack of information. It's from a lack of bending the knee to Lord Jesus. In order to come to Jesus, you need to realize that you are a Lazarus. And you need him in your life. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you've done for us. And as we come into our time of response, Lord, this is a hard passage to read. It should not make us prideful. Those of us that are believers in here today, that should not make us prideful that we have somehow figured it out. Lord, you've given us your word. and We've read it and we've responded. We thank you for that. Lord, there, there are those in here that we know, believers in here, that have unbelieving friends. For some of them, it may be that they've never heard the gospel. For many, they've heard it and haven't responded. Lord, 
Let us pray for those in our life who need to hear from you. If we really love them, uh, we will tell them now and not wait till it's too late. And we thank you for the gift of life and we thank you that you allow most of us to live many, many years on this world so that we can hear about you. Hear about your truth and hear about your love. And we thank you for Jesus who took our punishment on the cross who took the death that we deserve. He stood in our place. What a wonderful God that does that. We love you. We, we, we give this time to you today, Father. If there's one in here that's, that's never placed their faith in you today, that they would do so today. They wouldn't wait till tomorrow. So we're not promised tomorrow. They would make that decision today. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name.